0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the An Archaeologist Podcast. Now today will be an episode just with me. So just sit back, relax, whatever you're doing, and uh, we'll just go on a little bit of a journey. So today I kind of... So today I want to talk about chemistry. Something that is quite uh, close to my heart since I did actually start off university studying it. Now, what I want to talk about really is chemistry at the heart of archaeology, and don't worry, it's it's really not that difficult. You don't need a degree in chemistry and archaeology to understand it. But what's the point in understanding science, understanding chemistry, if you're not going to be using it every single day? It was one of the things that we talked about on the last episode. Well, I talked with uh, Chris about it, that you know, having the ability to understand things beyond the basic transects, lines, units, and generally how to dig in the ground means that when you do get issues where you have to overcome them in some interesting way, you have the tools to do that. What's really interesting is that recently I picked up a, um, an article, I think it was shared online somewhere, about low energy plasmas and radiocarbon dating. And I was so enthralled by the concept of this that I had to go back through my old chemistry textbooks. I had to go and look up online the proceedings of the last plasma conference. I had to really, really get involved into understanding what was going on here. And what I found was really, really interesting. And so in this episode, we will be looking at low energy plasmas and why they're not only sounding cool, but they may hold the key to a better understanding of the past. Dig it away, boys. So, I want to start off this episode talking about radiocarbon dating very, very, very briefly. The basic concept is there are many different types of carbon. These different types of carbon behave in different ways, if only a little bit slightly. The most common form of carbon is carbon-12. What this means is basically there are 12 atoms. There are 6 neutrons and 6 protons in the nucleus of carbon-12 atoms. There are two other variants that we commonly work with they are carbon 13 which has an extra neutron and carbon 14 which has two extra neutrons because of the imbalance of neutrons to protons carbon 14 is actually quite unstable it's a little bit radioactive this means it decays and a sample of carbon 14 will change over time because of its radioactivity what And this is precisely the principle of what radiocarbon dating works on we look at the ratio of carbon 14 to the other carbons to work out how old something is because if we know how much carbon 14 is in the atmosphere at a certain given time in the past and we work out how much of the ratios are in our samples we'll know how much has decayed and therefore how much has changed although that might sound complicated basically what it means is Less carbon-14, your sample is probably older. Now, there are some very, very small, simple caveats to this. Most notably, that carbon-14 is not the same over the last period of time. And carbon-14 does have a limit. You wouldn't use carbon-14 for something that's maybe 50,000 years old or 100,000 years old. It probably works best with samples under 30,000 Maybe you under better, under 20,000, and best within the last 14 or 15,000 years. This means we have to use radiocarbon dating sensibly. The next thing I want to talk about is how we process our samples for radiocarbon dating. A sample has to be big enough that we can determine the ratio of carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14 atoms from it. What this means for radiocarbon dating is typically measured in grams or milligrams. Now, if you have a small sample or a small artifact, a few milligrams or grams can be quite a lot. So if we're able to sample from a smaller sample size, that's always better. If we can be non-destructive, that's a thousand times better. Because the less material that we take off, the more material that stays, which is what we want. Processing a sample for radiocarbon dating is pretty simple. It goes something along the lines of, you take a small amount of your artifact, whatever it may be, let's say it's wood. So you take a small sample of the wood, you take a little bit off the side, and then what you need to do is homogenize it. You need to basically grind it up so it doesn't have any lumps or bumps in it. Basically, we want a sample that's homogenous. That basically means that everything is mixed around nicely and evenly, Rather than having globules of, you know, carbon atoms of any nitrogen atoms, oxygen atoms, all the way over, it's basically everything's mixed together quite nicely. Then what happens is you use a number of different techniques to radiocarbon date it. We can use a uh, mass spectrometers typically used. What happens here is the, the sample is ionized. That means basically we charge the atoms, we fire them at a target, and however how much they move through a magnetic field, we'll know how big they are. Typically what happens is the larger charges are affected by the magnetic field more. That basically means that they move more. When we calculate how much they've moved from the point that we're firing it at, then we kind of know what sort of atoms they are. And because carbon 12, 13, and 14 all have different masses, as in different amounts of neutrons in their nuclei, that means that they will be all moved differently. And we'll be able to understand that the we'll be able to see the difference in signal strength between all three of them. Now, why is that? Now, that's usually a typical scenario for radiocarbon dating. But it's not perfect. Radiocarbon dating is besieged by a lot of issues. There's the constant issue of contamination there's the fact we have to use calibrated dates because there is such a rapid change in the level of carbon and carbon-14 in the atmosphere so what is the alternative well the alternative is plasma plasma is the fourth state of matter along with air liquid solid it form it is a form of matter that is characterized by positively charged ions What we have, usually for a plasma, is a high-energy substance, something that's been heated to extreme temperatures. At these extreme temperatures, the atoms in a plasma don't behave like atoms anymore. Instead, what they have is they have their outer electrons taken away and, through this process, they become charged. Why does this happen? If you remember back to your basic chemistry, everything's made of atoms. Each atom has a nucleus, which is positively charged, and electrons, which are negatively charged. When we apply energy to a sample, through the form of heat, we basically give each of the particles more kinetic energy. That means energy that makes them move around. If they move around more and faster, they hit into each other more. These collisions occasionally knock electrons and the outer shells of the atoms off. And since this negative charge leaves the atom, the atom is no longer overall neutral. Instead, it is more positively charged. These ions fly around at amazing speeds and this is what makes plasmas really, really interesting is because they behave in such interesting ways. The thing is, these plasmas are usually extremely hot. A induction plasma torch is used to melt through metal and this is because it is extremely hot. But there's another story to plasmas. As I said before, a mass spectrometer works by shooting ions through a magnetic field. And that's because ions that are charged behave differently in a magnetic field. In the same way, a plasma behaves differently in a magnetic field. To make a plasma, what we need is we need a magnetic field. We need a magnetic field that alternates constantly. Usually, this happens when we apply a radio frequency to the current running through a circuit. Now, I know that might sound a bit complicated, but basically what we want to do is have a current that's always alternating. Typically what we have as a setup is a series of coils with an electric current going through them. This can some most commonly be copper coils. Through the copper coils, we insert a small tube, usually made of glass. And through this small tube, we usually push a gas. The magnetic field that changes because of the alternating current has an effect on the gas. It heats it up by induction. Induction is where the magnetic fields heats the gas up. And as the gas gets really, really hot, it turns slowly but surely into a plasma. So there you have it, your very first plasma. But the thing is, this is heating at an incredible temperature. It will melt most anything that comes in contact with. So why Has this anything to do with archaeology? Well, please, welcome in low-energy plasmas. So what's really interesting about plasmas is that you don't need to have 100% of a material as a plasma to behave like one. Sometimes what you can do is you can have a low-energy plasma. What this specifically means is that the ions that are moving the most or have the most energy are your electrons followed by your ions, followed by your gas molecules. This means that only a small percentage of your atoms are actually charged. So, therefore, over the entire bulk of the sample, all you have is a gas with a few charged ions in it. Interestingly, though, it still somewhat behaves like a plasma. It basically just doesn't burn anything you throw underneath it. Now, this is where the interesting part comes in. But you'll have to find out after this short break. CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM arc podcast. Let's get back to the show so with a low energy plasma that doesn't really burn anything it it comes in contact with what does it do? well if you can imagine all all these small particles flying around at really really high speeds if they were to hit something they would surely knock into it with quite a big collision especially we're talking at the atomic scale this is where the low energy plasma radiocarbon sampler comes in this is a device developed by marvin Rowe, of the new mexico office of archaeological studies of the new mexico office of archaeological studies this machine tries to use low energy plasma to obtain better samples of carbon from an artifact what basically happens is that under a vacuum, they apply a low-energy plasma made up of oxygen. And what it basically does is the small little ions that are running around at very, very high speeds, they take carbon atoms from the very surface of that sample. They kind of just take, abrasively take the first bit off. Imagine you're using, imagine you're using a very light sandpaper. On an object. A good analogy for this is imagine you're using a very small, a very very light grain sandpaper on an object. Using a heavy grain you're going to make marks in the object, you're going to leave furrows and troughs of the material you've taken off, but a light grain one will make smaller, will take less material off and will not make as deep a cut on the material. In the same way, a low-energy plasma doesn't remove, uh, doesn't remove large trenches, large gouges of material. Instead, what it does is it takes atoms from the top of the surface of the material, and because it's an oxygen plasma, what happens is the carbon molecules are basically knocked off the sample and combine with oxygen molecules in the plasma that aren't moving at such high speeds, creating carbon dioxide. Now, we get three flavors of carbon dioxide out of this. We get the carbon 12 carbon dioxide, we get the carbon 13 dioxide, and we get the carbon 14 dioxide. By measuring the various ratios of the gas produced, we're able to get a radiocarbon date with as small a sample size as possible. We are then now talking about micrograms of material being taken off. That's an incredible improvement. On other radiocarbon dating methods. But what does this actually mean? Number one, this is not a true non-destructive process, as some places have been touting it to be. It actually is destructive, but on such a small scale that in comparison with traditional methods of sampling, it really is quite positively the best scenario that we can have. Of course, we want completely non-invasive methods to sample Uh, two-sample artifacts so that in the future we don't use up anything in sampling. But perhaps this is one way forward. What will be really interesting now is the further development of this kind of technique. One of the great things you can do with it is that you can have in the same machine several different sampling chambers all running at once. This parallel processing means that the processing of artifacts or samples or replicants, replicate samples, will be much, much quicker. And ultimately, this is the way we want to start developing uh, replicates in chemistry. Because the more different samples that you prepare, the more error you introduce as a human being. I, I, I should know that because I've, <laughs> I've uh, done a lot of sampling before. And you know, it's one of those things where you're like, did I use that amount? Did I use this amount? And when we're talking such small sides and such small amounts, any sort of tiny error will have an effect. So what does this mean for archaeology? What it means is that archaeology isn't static. We are constantly improving our tools, and we will constantly improve our tools. The greatest knowledge of the past is in the future, but our future relies heavily on our past. What we should be doing is thinking about how to apply new chemical techniques, or even old chemical techniques, in a bid to try and make our understanding of archaeology far, far better. And I've been so enthusiastic about learning about plasmas now, god damn it, I feel like I'm an expert. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert in plasmas. But what I really love is the fact that we have something incredibly new, plasmas, which were being researched during the 1940s to the 1960s. I mean, the, this isn't something that we've discovered only in the 20th century, really. And we are now going back to radiocarbon dating, which was developed in the 50s. I mean, think about the lag time between those two technologies finally coming together. And that's the thing. We may already have, great technologies but we just haven't applied them yet and that's what science is about it's not always about finding the ultimately wholly new thing but instead it's about applying principles and techniques to find new and novel methods because it's ultimately that's what science is about it's about methodology sure you might be able to blow up a bridge or you can cook something slightly illegal or you can cook something illegal. But ultimately, the people who change are the people who change science are not those who make these fund who make large discoveries. They're the people in the background figuring out the best methodologies. Because it is on the sa- shoulders of giants and it is on the shoulders of methods that we stand today knowing what we know. And then the same way archaeology is the same archaeology may have great discoveries it may have treasures but that doesn't matter what matters is the day-to-day work that goes on to try and preserve the past not for its own preservation's sake but for the betterment of humanity as a whole and this is where I think science and archaeology combine the fact is that we are using the old to inform the new and we're using the new to figure out the old but I I want to know what you guys think do you think that archaeology and science are similar because the methodologies and that we apply are really quite important? Or do you think the outcomes are ultimately what we really need? And in addition to that, are there any scientific discoveries in archaeology that you think are really important? Why don't we have a conversation about this? And if you do want to have a conversation with me, I'm always available on Twitter, I've got an Instagram. And, uh, yeah, there's also my email address. I'd like to do more science stuff. Um, I find it... I'd like to do more science stuff. I, I just need to find really interesting topics like this one to actually talk about. What I'll do is I'll leave a link to the article and to some other research as well that I kind of find helpful in understanding what's going on. If you're very interested in this, there are a number of different articles out there available. Uh, Some are available, not as open access, unfortunately. But if you do have a university library access or a public library access, you might be able to find some stuff on Elsevier and other publishing websites. In addition, in conclusion to this episode, I just want to wrap up and say science is cool, archaeology is cool, and you're cool for listening to the Anarchaeologist podcast. Send us out!